Welcome to the Baseball America podcast. Baseball America, bringing you baseball news you can't get anywhere else for more than 35 years. Now it's time to talk baseball. Hey, welcome everybody, everyone to the weekly Baseball America Facebook Live. I'm John Manuel along with Ted Cahill. Now entering stage right will be J.J. Cooper in just a minute. J.J.'s pulling double duty today, so we uh, pre- appreciate J.J. working the technical aspects of it as well. He's going to give you expert baseball analysis as well. That's what we do every week at the Baseball America Facebook Live. I want to thank you for tuning in and remind you that they are sponsored by Baseballism. Baseballism is the official off-the-field brand of baseball, offering apparel for men, women, and kids. Shop now at Baseballism.com. Enter the offer code BASHIP to receive free shipping on your order. Visit Baseballism.com to shop for hats, shirts, and more today. Remember that special uh, code is B-A-S-H-I-P. And Teddy is sporting, uh, I think the first time on a Baseball America Facebook Live, the polo shirts. was more than the just t-shirts and hats. The baseballism polo. If you have a little more formal baseballism. Backpacks, purses. But I like the, I like the polo. I can't fit in the polo. I don't have... Uh, uh, Teddy's uh, youthful figure, but I do have strong takes on college baseball. We're going to talk a little 2018 Major League Baseball draft, and Teddy joined us uh, this summer watching the college national team. I love, Teddy, that you never really take a break. You go from straight from Omaha. You come in, and you're like, ah, Omaha wasn't hot enough. <laughs> I want to bake in the concrete at USA Baseball's uh, National Training Complex and watch the collegiate national team. But I think after last year when the team was out west, uh, it's better to. We, we were just glad to have them this summer. Kind of, you don't know what you got until it's gone. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's it's a really great thing that we have USA Baseball like 15 minutes down the road, and and I think we all missed the last summer that um, you know the team spent a week in the states together. You know, it was just one week in California, and not not only did we miss that, I think scouts missed that too. That um, you know they had to. A lot of them had to rush out and, and try and catch them when they could, but like they didn't have a very uh, a very big window to see them either. And uh, so to have them here in the states all summer long, and, and to have them back in North Carolina for a few weeks was uh, was beneficial, for, especially for us. I think one of the things that people liked about having the college national team back here was uh, the way John Savage put it to me. Out, in the, it was the head coach of the team this summer, the head coach at UCLA. He said, usually in California, depending on the weather, it could take a 10, 12 throws to get loose. Not in the humidity of July in North Carolina. In June and July in this area, you get loose after five throws. So, Because I talked to him uh, after a recent uh, one of my son's own practices where I threw BP for everybody. And uh, I didn't get as sore as I thought. And he, he attributed that. He said, you don't get as sore when you have that much BP either. But they also had a little different team this summer, Teddy. And we're going to get into it here with JJ as well. But this college national team was not a lot like last summer's. No Alex Fado, Kyle Wright, J.B. Bukowskis. Last summer was a real power rotation. This summer was just different. We just did not have, and I thought the position player crop was stronger this summer for the college national team than it was for the pitchers, and that's not usually what we see with the CNT. Yeah, I think that this year uh, what we saw was a pitching staff that prioritized strike throwing. I thought it was very West Coast pitching staff. It wasn't necessarily West Coast heavy in terms of players, but just like the approach was very much about strike throwing over velocity and and pure stuff and that worked out really well for the national team they went 15 and 5 they won all of their series they did everything they really wanted to do uh, but it did mean that when we look at it uh, I, I think that some people were left a little it was left a little wanting more in terms of of pure prospect ability and you know some of that some of those guys sat out the summer they were supposed to have Brady Singer after right. the the college world series he wound up not coming he uh, you know, through a lot of innings, taking Florida to, to its first national title. And 
Uh, so he's sad. And, uh, you know, Shane McClanahan from South Florida, a lot of people are excited about him for next year. He's coming off of Tommy John. He sat out the summer. And so some of these bigger, bigger arm guys wound up not doing anything this summer. And that hurts the, the perception of, of the class and of Team USA. But, you know, at the end of the day, they, they won their series. They won 15 games. It's, it's hard to argue with the results. Yeah, and they had good prospects as well, JJ. And they have prospects at the top of the draft. You've already overheard this. Our offices are too close to each other. <laughs> so you've overheard this many a time. But this college class, JJ, is just it is such a study in contrast between – and the college national team had two of them at number one and number three on our list – Nick Madrigal, five foot seven. If you're going to be five seven, one sixty one, JJ, what does that guy have? To, what boxes does that guy have to check in your mind to go in the first five picks of the the following year's draft? I think well, for one, if it wasn't for the fact that we have and they're more physical than that, but Jose Altuve, Dustin Pedroia in the big leagues, I think the answer would be you would have to grow two inches and gain right. twenty five pounds. I do think it is more possible for that guy to go top five, for Nick Madrigal to go top five, because we have, again, they're not perfect templates, but we do have templates where you say, yeah, can a 5'7 guy be a star? Right. Absolutely. But the other thing you have to do is you have to be able to have provide an impact in a multitude of different ways, and that's what Nick Madrigal can do. I mean, that's where he is a legit up-the-middle guy. He's a guy who, I like how you put it, which is, is when we've been talking in the office about it, it's like he's a shortstop he may not be your shortstop in the big leagues because you may have someone better. Right. But it's not something where it's in, it's something where you do not say, oh, there's no hope of playing shortstop. And if he's a second baseman, he's a really good second baseman. You know, another guy who kind of reminds me of who's in the major leagues right now is Ozzy Albies. He has a switch hit like Albies, but, um, you know, he had a 150 ISO in the Pac-12 this year. Uh, so he hit 380. He slugged over 500. He slugged 532. But, you know, when you hit 380, you're gonna, your slugging percentage – it's going to be pretty good. Uh, at 5'7", 160, Nick Madrigal is really never going to hit for power. And, like, we, we've talked a lot about power in the major leagues right now. That's if you don't have the short guy right. differentiator is, is how much power you're going to hit. I think the thing is, if he's prob- everyone I talked to, I asked that question to, and the most generous I could get was 40, 45 future power, where he's going to hit maybe eight home runs in a season. But if you're going to play up the middle, and if you're going to have special hands that allow you to make – uh, consistent contact and hard contact of the gaps, which Madrigal can do, and you're going to be a seven runner. We got some three nine times on Nick Madrigal and some jail breaks from the right side. Three nine seven to first base, somewhat consistently. That's pushing seventy runner. I think it's safe to say this guy's at least a plus runner with a chance to be a seventy runner, and the instincts are going to make it play. So the speed's going to play. I guess, Teddy, from the, the biggest question will be, is this guy going to be a big league shortstop or is he going to be a premium defender at second base? It seems like, unless you're on a team that doesn't have a shortstop, like I look at the Twins right now with Jorge Polanco. He's a good offensive player, but defensively shortstop is a real stretch for him. I can see Nick Madrigal being their shortstop, but I feel like most teams would say, eh, we got someone better at short. Let's take this guy who's a 50 shortstop and make him a 60 or 70 defender at second base. I feel like he's more likely a second baseman that a shortstop, but he can play short in the right situation. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at college shortstops, by far the majority of them are not big league shortstops. No matter how good you think they are relative to their peers, right. they, just, they just are not shortstops in the big leagues. Dansby Swanson is incredibly rare in that aspect that if you can play shortstop, 
pro teams don't let you go to college. And Very true. it's just so hard. They ask so much of shortstops that it, it's just incredibly difficult. And no, I, I don't think he's going to end up being that guy. And maybe that's okay. Maybe maybe that's fine that he can go be an above average second baseman. Um, you know, but I, I don't I don't think it's that. I don't think he's a shortstop and, and in general that that's not a knock on him. That's just in general. If you're in college, you're probably not a shortstop. That, that, that leads into the question that Kurt Mack has here, which is I think a good one. You bring up that example. Trey Turner is an example of that. Trey Turner, great college career. But Teddy, I mean, you said, like, but he does, he has played shortstop for, you know, for the Nationals. It's kind of one of those things where he plays shortstop if there's not better options out there. Is don't that? For, don't forget, I also tell Kurt, don't forget that the people did want Trey Turner out of high school. It was really only one team, it was the Pirates, but they offered him, hey, you want a half million, you said a half million dollars is your offer? We'll offer you a half million dollars. And Trey Turner said, ah, no, nah. he kept changing his number. The Pirates, I think, went up to seven figures for Trey Turner. So, he was another example of what Teddy's talking about. There were every team wasn't on him, but guys who run like that and can play up the middle usually don't get to college. He was an exception as a late bloomer. And even then, I don't think the, the Padres were sold on Trey Turner when they changed front offices, and that's one of the reasons no, that's he why was traded. He got traded because they didn't think he was a shortstop. And you know, the the Nationals for a while, you know, entertained the idea, but ultimately, you know, we're seeing that Maybe he's not, and you know maybe he is, but it, still, I mean, the, these are very rare circumstances. The better cases are actually a guy like a Caden Grenier who plays shortstop for Oregon State right now. He's got more arm strength, a more physical athlete, but the bat is behind the glove, and that's why he's compared to Zach Kozart, right-handed hitter, very similar guys. Liked him out of high school, played in the uh, Memphis area uh, in high school, was on the uh, travel ball circuit, and was famous. Went to Ole Miss, uh, was on Team USA, was still a fourth-round pick. Because people had questions about uh, his bat ultimately, and now this year he was a he was a you know all star in the major league. So the other extreme to Nick Madrigal is Seth Beer, and I feel like the uh, Twitter sphere, college baseball fans, because of Seth Beer's high, uh, freshman season where he skipped his high school senior year, hit the ground. I won't say hit the ground running, hit the ground mashing for Clemson, um, and had this monster season where he was in the mix for us. He was our freshman of the year in the mix to be national player of the year offensively had a season as good as anybody in college baseball did in 2016. Not as good a year in 2017, but still a very effective offensive player for Clemson. Walked a ton, hit for power. He now has three summers, though, Teddy, with Wood, his summer after his high school junior year, and then where he reclassified. Last summer for Team USA, for college national team, and now this summer, two extra base hits for Seth Beer for the CMT this year. This is a guy who lost basically a half second on his run times. He was a 4-5 runner last summer with the college national team. That's Bob on the scale. That's a 30 or 20 runner from the left side. We got five second times on him this summer. I think Teddy Seth Beer is at all these extremes where he brings you very little defensive value, and there are some real questions about his athleticism, but he has an undeniable hitting track record with metal. What are teams going to do with Seth Beer? I, th- I feel like he could go – Anywhere in the in the 2018 draft, including he could not he could go through the draft and be like a token 37th round pick like JJ Schwartz was this year. I think there's a disconnect between what scouts think of him and what college baseball fans think of him. Am I, am I overstating that? No, I mean I think there definitely is, and I think there always has been. Uh, you know, from the time that he reclassified, um, 
you know, there was obviously there's excitement anytime somebody reclassifies. But if you go back and look at reports from the time and look at what we wrote at the time, it was that, you know, he's not an outfielder. He's going to probably have to move to first base. And that's basically come to fruition. And that, uh, you know, pretty much the, the book on him at the time remains the book now. It's just that he had this incredible freshman year. Right. He had a very, very strong uh, year this year as well. And, um, you know, so he, he became very famous but you know that doesn't override you know the the larger issues that you're drafting at best a first baseman basically at best you know and and you know maybe he winds up being like Jason Giambi or something but you know I th- that's a really really high bar that he's going to have to hit to and you know even if he is hitting with wood it's still an exceptionally high bar and then the fact that you have these summers where it doesn't match what he'd been doing at Clemson you know, that just clouds it even further. But I think the fact of the matter is that if he goes out and repeats his freshman year, or even repeats his sophomore year, you know, he's looking like a, a first-rounder still. But, that, but that's, I think, first-rounder. I, I do think, what was I, I'm trying to remember, I'm racking my brain for what the slogan was. Uh, it was it wasn't tank for beer, but it was basically yeah. There was something like that. There were there were a lot of those. Slogans. You know, like, that's, like, that's what like I mean. Thinking that he was like a, well, I know you answered a, an Ask BA yeah. question about would he be one one if he were in uh, you know the seventeen right. draft and like it's like no no I, I, you know but but it's never been like that you know I I think he's that never been that guy. He, he has never been that. People guy. People wanted him to be that guy. People meaning meaning fans potentially that that you know wanted to see their team take a, a college hitter. That you know college hitters move quickly. They want to see a bat in their lineup. Uh, a lot of uh, draft fans, I feel like, had the same thought about J.J. Schwartz. Those guys are are, are not one-one guys. Again, and, and, and you you there like, is as no you there out. is no analog I can find. Like when you think of the guys, the college bats who end up being kind of corner outfield types. Because the reality is, is most of them play other positions. College first basemen don't go in the top five picks. I mean, they, you you have to go really far back. Because most of the guys that we think of that are the college are the successful big leaguer college, you know, first first baseman came out of college. Mark Teixeira was a third baseman, right? You know, it, Ryan Braun was a shortstop. Ryan Braun third was baseman. a shortstop. Alex third Gordon baseman. was a third baseman. I mean, like these are the college corner. Like Hunter Pence. I mean, I have to update the study, but Hunter Pence was like, and Carlos Quinton were like two of the big league regulars of the last decade, who were college outfield corner players who became big league outfield corner regulars. For the most part, it's the, the guys are uh, you know college. I mean, you know who to me Seth Beer's closest comparison I can think of is Adam Lind. That's who he's like. If I was going to throw a comp on him, not talking to scouts, just thinking about it out loud, Adam Lind. Adam Lind can hit. He draws walks. He doesn't hit for average because he can't run, and he has had very little defensive value over the course of his career. He's been a good big leaguer, but he's Adam Lind. He's not like the way people think of Seth Beer. And, and Seth Beer has an Adam Lynn career. Good on Seth Beer. He'd make a lot of money. He'd be a big league regular. He'd get a pension. That'd be an awesome outcome for Seth Beer. But he's not and, in position to be a superstar. And the th- thing that is craziest about that is, is, and again, there is the possibility that what we saw this summer, that he's moving better again next year. One hopes. He's got to. But if he doesn't. You are not talking that he's Adam Lind at age 22. Right. You're talking about an Adam Lind type, but what Adam Lind runs like at age 30. That's the problem. And what Albert Pujols runs like now. So what we're really hoping is that Seth Beer has some kind of injury to his feet that can be ameliorated, that can be repaired, that can improve. Because the gait, the way he runs, that was a real problem for scouts. And at the same time, 
I will not forget it, watching him with his summer teammate from last summer, J.B. Bukowskis, facing off this year when North Carolina played Clemson, and he just rained blows upon a 95-mile-an-hour J.B. Bukowskis fastball, turned on it, drilled it off the wall in right field, and as he did pull into second base ahead of the throw, winking at J.B. Bukowskis' old roommate. So he's got hitters, actions in the, in the batter's box. He's already got the launch angle swing. He's got power. It just hasn't played with Wood either. 21 for 101 the last two summers with four extra base hits for the college national team. So I ranked him number three in this list. You know, Teddy, we kind of debated all over the place. And one of our other questions is about Steel Walker, Justin Cook, asking about Steel Walker. Uh, let's move off from – I don't mean to bag on Seth, but, I mean, like, he's going to be fascinating to watch going forward. Steel Walker will too, Teddy, because he's the classic guy who I think the industry always winds up light on and comes around. He can hit, and I know right now he's a left fielder, and because of Kyler Murray, he's probably going to stay a left fielder or right fielder for Oklahoma, right? He's not going to play center fielder. Uh, center fielder. I think he probably does play center field. I mean, Kyler, how much do you have him for? And you, There's a lot of work there. I, I think okay. Steele Steel is that center fielder, but that doesn't mean that he's a big league center fielder. It's too bad that Steele Walker's name isn't Swaggerty like Travis Swaggerty because he has swag for days. The, the way people talk about him is that he's the most confident hitter off this college national team, but it really is that David DeJesus, kind of Matt Joycey college corner bat profile where it's hit over power, but he does have a pretty good track record for hitting. He does. I mean, he's been a very consistent player for Oklahoma. He was the best. He was named MVP of the first two series for, for Team USA this year. Uh, you know, he really did it against Taiwan and and against Cuba. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, he had a really strong summer, and, and I think that he opened some eyes. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you like him, you can see him as, as this David DeJesus type. And, you know, that's difficult to decide where you draft that kind of player. Right. But I think that is a very valuable player once you get into pro ball. Yeah, David DeJesus is an above-average uh, offensive player uh, on a corner. J.J. never really was a center fielder. That doesn't excite you, does it, David DeJesus? No, 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 comment. I was just going to say, the thing about it is, it's like, it's funny that David DeJesus, you know, and then you get to the Cole Calhoun line, and which I, I would have said a couple years ago, I thought the David DeJesus line was above the Cole Calhoun line, and now I'll say, I think the Cole Calhoun line may be a little bit above the David DeJesus line, a little bit more pop. Yeah, a little bit more pop than DeJesus. That's kind of, but that's what you're talking about. That's a, That can be a very useful play. That's the kind of guy who does go well in the draft, not going to be a top, you know, the top pick or anything like that, but... Those are the kind of players, the same as you know that the college middle infielders when we talk about Madrigal. Those are the guys that you would look back on and say it's a very valuable pick. I mean, you're not. A lot of times you can succeed in a draft because you hit a solid double, not because you swing right. for the fences. I think Steel Walker's a solid double. I think he's going to hit a lot of solid doubles, and I think he is. Yeah, double. I don't know that. I, I just saw a tweet that the Tigers think that Mikey Mata could be their their future in center field, and you know I don't know that that he's like Mikey Mata, but I, I think that kind of range in the draft where Mata went, you know, it, it just feels like he's a, a back end of the the first round, and and you'll wind up with a guy that in a few years somebody will be tweeting. I, I think we found a big league regular here. Yeah, I think that's right, JJ. I, I was gonna say this, John uh, Ericola question i like it here it's kind of asking the question he says i have friends who want the tigers to play to win and poo-poo the difference between picking fourth and picking seventh which right now i think you could make the argument is you could go from the wild card to picking fifth i think it's you <laughs> it's know close. it's that kind of range but uh are they right or am i correct you know basically in saying that there's that each loss here actually is valuable 
I mean, I don't honestly. I still think uh, the way that the draft is working out right now, guys. Uh, even in that top, uh, uh, once the draft like drops off, once there's a top, there's like a top six or seven in some years, or a top three, like in 2010, it was a seen as a three-player draft. It was uh, Harper, uh, Machado, Tyone in some order, and then after that, it was kind of a crapshoot. And I think that there, every draft has this group at the top that there's consensus about. And this year there were six or seven guys like that. And then the consensus falls apart. And that's where you get the Diamondbacks say, well, we don't want to pay Adam Hazley over slot, so we'll go to Paven Smith. And the consensus was Hazley and Smith were kind of similar, but the Phillies really wanted Hazley, paid him over slot. The Diamondbacks weren't going to pay him that, so the Diamondbacks took the next guy that, that they could get. So it just depends on the draft. If the draft is a four-player draft, then you really want to be in that top four. If the draft is a seven or eight player draft, then it doesn't matter between four and seven. Oh, we like four as much as we like seven. There wasn't that much difference. So it really just depends on the draft class. Teddy, I'm not sure that we can shake it out at this point. I, uh, I, w- I would say that no, we can't. But I would say that you want to be fourth because the difference in pool between four and seven is going to be some sort of significant number. We don't know exactly what it will be yet. I don't know off the top of my head what enough it was this to, year. Enough to maybe get an extra player yeah, later. Yeah, but we're talking about a few hundred thousand dollars, which... Or several hundred, yeah, several I, hundred I, thousand. It's, and, it, and that's, I mean, and that's useful. Especially with how it's been compressed now. To me, you saw it this year. The Braves picked fifth. Now, they made a conscious decision that they were going to spin their draft on their top two picks, Kyle Wright, Drew Waters. But because of how the draft is now, even picking fifth, you could go to essentially not much difference bonus-wise yeah. what the guys who were going 1-1 went. This year, the, the difference was about $1.1 million, between four and seven. And that's, so a, that's a significant that's, difference to, to want to be four, but yeah. that What I'm saying is, is, yes, it is not as dramatic a difference as it would have been you know, a couple of years ago. But still... The reality of it is, is that it's not just if it's a four-player draft or a six-player draft or whatever. It's also that $1.1 million extra dollars either means you're getting a significantly more valued. I mean, it's going to be better, but more valued player with your pick at four compared to seven. Or if there is no consensus, let's say there's not. Let's say it's a three-player draft. What that means is, is if you're picking between all the other guys at four, then you're working a deal with someone, and then you're getting an extra guy down the road. And that that's valuable. That's how you don't have your draft all in the, you know, you don't put all the eggs in the one or two player basket at the top of your draft. So uh, it's hard to watch a team tank, I think, sometimes for fans, but uh, the, the Tigers, they're doing that okay on their own, you know, <laughs> uh, losing games, whether they're trying to tank or not. So uh, I'm not sure if that means they should trade Justin Verlander. Uh, that's a whole other discussion, but I don't think you'd trade Justin Verlander so you can move down three spots. You'd make a move like that to save payroll and, and go on a all-out rebuild. We have a lot of questions from our NC State fan friend, Justin Cook. Uh, uh, Teddy, a lot of them have to do with players from this year's CNT. But he also asked about Andrew Kisner and Evan Mendoza off the good starts this year in their pro careers. I don't know if you've noticed, Andrew Kisner's in double-A for the— uh, What? Yes, he's in double-A and he's hitting for the Cardinals as a catcher. And Evan Mendoza's had a really nice pro debut. I don't know if either of those guys float your boat more than the other. Uh, you know, I, if you think Kisner's a catcher, uh, that's certainly valuable. I was skeptical of that. Uh, but, I mean, Mendoza, if he... Mendoza's an interesting player just in, in terms of, like, he has the ability to be really flashy defensively, and, and, and he's valuable over at third base, but, like, he also 
carries some questions on the hit tool and if he could put it all together he'd be outstanding but you know it, it does there Kisner might be the more consistent everyday kind of guy if he can stay behind the plate. Yeah, I like I like Andrew Kisner as a player. Um, I'm shocked by the double A season he's had. He's hitting 330 in double A in his first full pro year. I think he's definitely one of the more under the radar, really good minor league seasons this year. Um, and he was a freshman All American and then converted to catcher, and, and it did not come easy to him. I mean, he did it for NC State pretty much every day, but uh, he boxed a lot of balls. He was never super quick with his transfer to, uh, and throws to second base. He had arm strength, but I never saw a quick transfer. But uh, he was he's only been a catcher. This is his third year as a catcher. And the fact that he's hitting in pro ball the way he's hitting, that's pretty encouraging. So Evan Mendoza was always a personal cheese ball of mine. Definitely think that he can hit. He's up in Peoria not hitting, but he hit 370 in short season ball. Uh, I'm with you. I think the hands play. He was an outstanding defender. Uh, I hope that, that, that there's a reason why we thought NC State would be really good the last couple of years. We like their position players. Um, that just didn't always uh, come together at the same time. It seemed like when some of those guys were really better as sophomores and some of them were a lot better as juniors and they didn't put good seasons together all at the same time. And, and that's why they uh, wound up only getting as far as a regional uh, three years in a row now where they've lost uh, in some heartbreaking regional finals. JJ, I, I got one other question here. Scott Williams asking, uh, this one's from me, uh, but uh, who's in, whose fault is it for how bad the Royals farm system is? I, I wasn't is sure if you wanted this question. Is it Dayton Moore <laughs> or J.J. Piccolo? We just don't have nothing worthwhile down the minors. I which think it's J.J. Cooper's It's a double yeah. negative. Yes, but to which, to which my answer is a simple one, which is is that, yes. wait, there's this thing that they wear that <laughs> happened not that long ago. Okay, but it's and, not and, just that. No, 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 it's not just that. But my point, though, is is that, they actually, there have been, there's a draft. The Ash Russell draft is hurting them and will hurt them for quite a while. They took Ash Russell that year. They took um, Nolan, Nolan Watson. Watson. And they are, if they, if they get anything out of those two at this point, it would be shocking. That's my real question. Do the, have the Royals front office, has the Royals front office evinced ever to you any lack of conviction in their pitcher development over the course of the dozen years they've been in charge. This group has been there since 2006. Or do they still retain full confidence in the way they develop pitching? Because I know that it's hard, but they have not had much success with it. They have had some. Mike Montgomery's had a decent big league career, not Dan- for them. But and Danny Duffy. And Jordano Ventura before he... But I mean in the draft. Yeah. yeah. The way, because they were nine years in and drafted two high school right-handers in the first round. Granted... They were good in the major leagues, but you knew at the time, and they knew at the time, that the time that the, the the clock was ticking on that core group, and they've had so much more success drafting hitters than pitchers, but yet they still have been very aggressive drafting pitchers, and that year was a pretty epic now, fail two years out. I, I will say, it's not going to be a, it's not going to be a blow you away or anything like that. They went they did double up two years in a row. The other one was they went Scott Blewett who. He's been okay. I mean, he's he's not a top hundred prospect by any stretch of the imagination, but he is a useful high school arm who's kind of developing. And Jake Junis has been a big leader for him. Speaking of NC State, he was an NC State recruit, same recruiting class as Trey Turner, and, Brett Austin, Carlos Rodon. They thought they were going to lose Rodon and get Junis. They went the other way. And Foster Griffin made it to Double A this year. Has been has been a solid. You know, again, those guys are probably more when we talk about. If they succeed, it's going to be more that you hit the single or double, not you hit the home run. 
But they have, they've hit one home run in the draft pitching wise in twelve years, right? Dane Duffy. Um, and they do not stop swinging for the fences. There's no two strike approach here. Is my point. Yeah. I mean, like, was AJ Puckett their two strike approach? The draft the college trade, guy, trade and they already him. traded him. Yeah. I mean, Josh Stalmont's not a two strike approach. That's no, a that's, swing that's, for that's, the fences. That's a swing for the fences. There. That's what. I, that's my point. It's a very swing for the fences pitching approach, and it's a lot of punch chase. Right. At the same time, my point though that I am making is is that if you are a as small a rev- as small a market team as there is with the Royals, and you go to the World Series, and then the next year you win the World Series, and then the cliff, you hit the cliff. That doesn't mean you do not reassess and say, what could we have done differently? But this cliff was going to come no matter, they could have drafted, they could have hit a solid double with Ash Russell, and the cliff was still going to get here. Because that's the one thing I'll say. That's not the point. No, no, no. The point is, why did their system get this bad? Winning a World Series does not equal bad farm system. It doesn't have to. Generally, I will say though, I do think now this is one. This is actually my point. It is the way that things are. The way yes. that it goes now is is yes, winning a World Series and having a bad farm system now, unless you're the Los Angeles Dodgers, where you you know otherwise than that, like if you look at the Cubs now, the Cubs have a bad farm system now, yes. and the reason is is that. When we wrote the Royals farm system in 2011, we wrote it as they were talking about they need this next wave to keep the winning going. No, what you need the next wave for is to feed to get the first wave over the hump. And that's what the Cubs did with Eloy and what they do with Glaber and all that. Now, again, that does not mean the Royals have not made, they had some draft picks that you look back at and go, that did not work out well. Obviously, Bubba Starling not turning into the $7 million man, that hurts. Things like that. But I do think also that there is a component of this, which is if you are winning at the big league level, at that point you take whatever you have in the farm system and right. you say, we are throwing it, we are throwing away the future to win now. And if you do that, but, you then have to accept it. I, I understand that they're, that you, they're, it's hard to win and have a good farm system in baseball right now. This is Bud Selig's creation. But again, my point is, at what point do they acknowledge the way they're doing it isn't working? And have they made any adjustments? I don't sense that they have adjusted um, as far as the way they evaluate pitchers in the draft and the way they draft them and the way they develop them. I, I don't sense that at all. And I do sense, like, the Cubs have. Like, they, hey, our system's really heavy with players. We've got to draft a lot of pitchers. And they've thrown a lot of different means at drafting pitchers. Analytics, uh, fastball, the way they evaluate players, international, domestic have you sensed that among the Royals? It doesn't seem, because it seems like they kind of are the same as it ever was. No, I was going to say, you could argue that Puckett draft, which is, again, they've already traded away, but Puckett was a little bit more of, because that, again, they didn't have a whole lot of high draft picks last right. year. They, not, they didn't have high draft picks last year. Right. And taking a Puckett, who was more of that. Because they have had some success with college pitchers. They did draft Sean Maniah. They did draft Brandon Finnegan. And both those guys helped, uh, you know, they, I mean, Matt Strom was a Juco find who they right. turned around. You know, he had a good but second half. pitchers, but, whew, they've spent a lot of money on high school pitching. And, like, if you, like I said, if Foster Griffin or Scott Blewett turns into a single or a double, that would be significant in this context. Mm-hmm. So I think it's understandable to have some, uh, as a Royals fan, some, like, why is it this bad? Because I don't think that the trades aren't the only reason of why they're 29th or 30th no. that we did a farm system. Were they 29th? When we did farm system rankings in midseason, they were the 29 or 30 in the Marlins. So the Cubs were down there, but the Cubs were down there after a very recent spate of trades with some elite prospects 
that wasn't exactly what the Royals the Royals were going to be down there uh, whether they uh, had just traded they hadn't just traded Eloy Jimenez and Glaber Torres to get down there so uh, a lot of good questions uh, on the Facebook live as we have pretty much every week JJ's checking out uh, Teddy's uh, Teddy's going to stay in the picture while I read the uh, outro but I want to thank everybody for tuning in again for our Facebook live our Facebook lives and our podcast are sponsored by Baseballism don't forget to shop now at Baseballism.com and enter the offer code BASHIP to receive free shipping on your order Visit baseballism.com to shop for hats, shirts, polo shirts, and more. For Teddy in the polo shirt, for JJ in the 643 equals two shirt, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you on the next Baseball America Facebook Live. So long, everybody. This concludes our program. Want more in-depth baseball coverage? Be a better fan. Visit baseballamerica.com to get more comprehensive baseball coverage.